Good morning and a warm welcome to you. I don't know how many of you watch The Repair Shop on television, but it's one of my favourite programmes. Uh, yeah. Probably second only to call the midwife, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you all you need to know about my viewing preferences, I think. <laughs> well, in the repair shop, uh, people are invited to bring old family heirlooms in need of some TLC to perhaps a, a group of experts who can restore and mend pretty much anything. It might be an old teddy or a piece of furniture. It could be uh, a clock or a musical instrument, a whole variety of things, really. What usually ties all the items together with their stories is the link with dearly loved family members. And you can be fairly sure that almost every episode will feature someone whose battered old object reminds them of a close relative, often someone who's died, but whose memory is deeply precious. There's a sense that if the item could be restored, then somehow the memory of that loved one could be rekindled, re-cherished, as it were. And the skill of the expert is incredible, but their work often ends up being of secondary importance. And it's the release of emotion that normally comes when the revitalised object is finally revealed. Then that can be completely overwhelming. Memories of that special person come flooding back and suddenly you realise it's not so much about the restoration of the relic. It's more about the restoration of the relationship. Well, today we're looking at the next in our series of Jesus' cries from the cross. And how fitting that on Mothering Sunday, we have this brief exchange in which Jesus puts aside his own agony in order to address that of his mother. It's hard to think um, about Mary's situation, really. Um, it's difficult to know whether she'd grasped that this is how things were going to turn out for her precious son. I wonder if she had reflected over the years on the words that the wise men had said, the gift perhaps particularly that they brought of myrrh, speaking as it did of burial rituals for the dead. What had she made of Simeon's prophecy all those years ago when Jesus was dedicated in the temple? Do you remember he'd said to her, and a sword will pierce your soul too? How closely had she followed the growing opposition to Jesus' ministries? And I wonder if she'd thought, oh, well, perhaps he'll calm down a bit as things start to become difficult cannot know these things but what we do know is that she hadn't left him in this darkest of hours despite the shame of being seen 
as the mother of a crucified criminal, she deliberately placed herself close to the cross, consciously associating herself with the one that she loved and the one that she knew loved her too. And as we know, she was accompanied by some of the women folk who were there, followers of Jesus, Jesus themselves, um, they'd actively associated themselves with him and in some ways contributed to his ministry. And that included Mary's sister, who was also there. And to complete the context for this scene, we have John standing close by. Now, to the best of our knowledge, he was actually the only disciple who stayed to witness the execution. Scripture suggests that everyone else had run away the night before when Jesus was arrested. But John, described in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, had stayed close to Mary and was, if nothing else, at least prepared to be nearby, if not alongside Jesus. And to that extent, you might say that he was nailing his colours to the mast as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And then we have this. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, I don't want to overcomplicate what I don't think should be complicated, but I do think that there are some things to reflect on here. And I wonder if you'll forgive me if I stick with the age-old Baptist tradition and uh, pick up three brief points. Well, three points anyway. So firstly, I want to suggest that Jesus has a heart for the individual. How often in the Gospels do we see Jesus prioritising the needs of others over his own needs? Obviously he was human and we know that he got tired And sometimes he tried to retreat, didn't he, to a a quiet place to recharge his batteries and to pray and to rest. But so many times the crowd were desperate to hear more of his teaching and they'd follow him wherever he went. People brought the sick for healing. They wanted answers to their questions. And some even challenged what he said and his right to say it. But he was always gracious, wasn't he? He was always there to give people time. And he went out of his way, often quite literally out of his way, in order to do good and to be a blessing. And here, at this moment of dejection, isolation and overwhelming pain, we still see that uh, Jesus is there to take care of his mother. 
Because uh, Joseph hasn't been mentioned, uh, it's generally assumed that uh, he had died sometime before. So Mary was already a widow, and very soon her eldest son, who traditionally would have had the responsibility for looking after her, will be gone too. Even from this position of humiliation and degradation, Jesus finds it within himself to think about Mary's practical and emotional needs by linking her with someone that he knows will take care of her. You might think that in addressing his mother as woman, Jesus is being rather cold, but in Jewish culture, a dying testamentary statement spoken aloud carried legal weight. And the theologians seem to agree that Jesus is being intentional here in making his wishes clearly and formally known concerning who should be responsible for Mary. He wants to make sure that everything is as it should be and that the best possible provision will be made. And he's also thinking about his much-loved friend John, one of his inner circle. He knows that John will be hurting in so many ways. And in the words that Jesus uses here, he's being deliberately uh, handing over responsibility to John. He's showing a respect and a trust that despite everything, John will be up to the task. Perhaps that was a small encouragement to John at such a, a terribly difficult time for him. And maybe it was only in hindsight that John truly grasped the privilege that he'd been given to serve his master and friend in this way. That Jesus was relying on him Secondly, I want to suggest that Jesus has a heart for family. Now, I don't have the time to go through all the Old Testament examples of how family makes up the bedrock of structured community living. But from Adam and Eve to Noah and all his extended family who were saved in the ark, to the birth of the Jewish nation through Abraham and his family, we see how God used family as the glue to hold his people together. Jacob's family, you'll remember, became the Israelite nation, though, as we know, uh, there were many things that they got wrong, many mistakes along the way. The Ten Commandments were given when Moses was leader, uh, giving structure not only for personal responsibility, but also for family law, honouring your father and mother, and uh, not committing adultery, for example. And once they'd escaped from Egypt and finally reached the Promised Land, the people were settled in family groups. 
And this emphasis on family is reinforced time and time again throughout the Bible. Even as the New Testament begins in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, the first 16 verses are family history outlining the genealogy of Jesus and his link back to Abraham. So why is this history of any relevance here? Well, the heart of God is reflected in the heart of Jesus and the value and importance of family is deeply embedded there. Scripture encourages a man and a woman to leave their parents and be joined together in marriage so that the stability of family life can be maintained as one generation follows another. This is the pattern that we see established in Scripture and repeated down through the ages. It's God's plan for healthy and prosperous living. Though I should say at this point that some people, of course, are called to a single life and that's commended in Scripture as well. And as we observe this scene around the cross, the significance of family ties isn't lost. There's evidence to suggest that Jesus and John were related. We know from John's Gospel that Mary's sister was in attendance and by comparing this account with those of Matthew and Mark, we see that Mary's sister was the mother of James and John, who were Zebedee's sons. And that means that James and John were cousins. The sense and significance of the instructions Jesus gives about who should take care of his mother uh, is so much more clear when we understand the family context. Family have a responsibility for one another. And although it's not obviously a guarantee that everyone will get on with everyone else in the family, we do need to show kindness and care as needs arise, especially in a family context. And of course, blood family isn't the only sort of family. Family can be made up of lots of different ways and that includes adoption and it's that thought that brings me to the third point that I wanted to make that Jesus has a heart for the family of the church now we're very familiar aren't we with the concept of church as family I love this verse from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 that sums it up nicely Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And Paul picks up this theme when he wrote to the early churches, the ones that he'd helped to establish, referring often to the recipients of his letters as dearly loved brothers and sisters. And in reality, that's possible not because we have a right to the privilege of family membership, 
because you can't be born into it as was the case in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Membership of the family of believers comes by faith, by God's grace under the New Covenant, sealed by the blood of Jesus. And in this way, we are adopted, adopted out of our old way of life and into God's family, his ideal for living, being in relationship with one another and with God himself, who is our Heavenly Father. Listen to these words from Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. At this intimate moment of the cross, where Jesus hands over the care of his precious mother into the hands of his precious friend and cousin, It's not only the blood tie we see, but the spiritual tie. Mary and John are drawn to Jesus because they believe in him and they trust him, despite the terrible circumstances. And in being drawn to Jesus, Jesus draws them to each other. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that Surely that's what church is. Believers drawn to one another because of their love for the Saviour and their desire to serve him and to serve each other. It says in Galatians 6 and verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are the family of believers. Do you remember that time when Jesus, um, on the surface of it, seems to be dismissive of his family? Um, It's recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels, uh, but I want to just read it from Matthew's account in chapter 12. Whilst Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
And in the context of what we've thought about this morning, I think it's clear that Jesus wasn't in any way dismissing his family, but instead he was making the point that for him, family is bigger than just the people with whom you share your house or your genes or both. We are family together as believers and as those who do what God asks of us. Friends, it's a privilege to belong to the family of God, isn't it? The church. We are the church and Jesus loves the church. She is his bride for whom he died. And we are called to support and care for one another. And as we do that, we honour Jesus who instructs us to have hearts of love to reflect his own. And perhaps that allows me to cheat a little and finish with a fourth point uh, that Jesus has a heart that is motivated by and driven by love because that is who God is. That is who Jesus is. My command is this, said Jesus, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. One of the things that stood out for me in preparing this talk is how the repeating theme of obedience comes through as a characteristic of people who follow Jesus. We heard it in that verse about who is my mother and my brother, and we hear it again here where Jesus is talking to his disciples. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Yes, we make mistakes, don't we? And yes, we have to keep coming back to ask for forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus so wants to bless us with. But all of that is only possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to make on Calvary's cross. Love is what took him there and love is what held him there. Love for you and love for me and love for all mankind. Love for those who would choose to accept him. And love for those who would not. Woman, here is your son. John, here is your mother. In these simple words, in the midst of his agony in bringing two people together... Was Jesus not saying to Mary, I love you? Was he not saying to John, I love you? And does he not say to you and to me, I love you? I love you with all my heart. So much so that I'm bringing you together with my heavenly father who loves you with a passion. Jesus' heart 
truly reflects that of his father, a heart full of love. And what God offers to us is surely what we should offer to others. Which just got me thinking briefly about what God's love looks like when it's put into practice. And I couldn't think of a better summary than these very familiar verses from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So I wonder what God is whispering to you this morning. Has he simply laid on your heart the value that comes from the blessing of having a mum or maybe mother figure in your life? What a privilege to know a mother's love. Is it something to do with obedience that stirs your conscience? Let's do what we need to do. Let's say what we need to say. Let's be what we need to be. Maybe he's just reminding you that he loves you as an individual, precious in his sight and loved with an everlasting love. He might be inviting you to think again about your family relationships. Are there things that you need to do to honour family members? Things perhaps that you've neglected for too long. Is now the time to grasp that nettle and put things right? It might need forgiveness. But as Jesus demonstrated, forgiving is for giving. Perhaps he's challenging you to take up some service which will bless the family of believers, either here or somewhere else. Think of the privilege rather than the burden that it would be that Jesus is trusting you with this and relying on you for it. And what about the big question of where you stand with Jesus? How close to the cross dare you stand? His mercy and grace are open for you to receive and the offer of sonship confronts you afresh today. Is this the day to say yes to him? To nail your colours to the mast, as it were. To know the joy of being part of the family of believers. He stands with arms open wide. This wide. 
to welcome you as a child of God and an heir to the kingdom. Please don't miss the opportunity if the Spirit is speaking to you because he loves you this much. We started by mentioning the repair shop. Couldn't miss the opportunity to put a repair shop uh, sign up. And we said that it wasn't so much about the relic being restored, but more about the relationship. You might be thinking that there are some relics in your own life that have been buried away that you're ashamed of because they're tatty and misused and definitely not for public view or display. Well, I want to say that Jesus is the master carpenter. He can reshape and remake our lives in ways that will astound and amaze us. He brings complete restoration through his transformational mercy and grace and love. Nothing is beyond him. This is the last slide, and I don't know who the person is there in this slide. Just some random person, I guess. But I wonder if maybe that random person is you. It takes courage to come to God's repair shop. But I promise you, any tears that you cry will ultimately be tears of joy. Not just because damaged parts of you and your history will see transformation. But because your relationship with your Heavenly Father will have been restored and you will have a new family who will love you and who will care for you and to whom you in turn will be a blessing. May it be so.